Well, glad you're here this morning. Brave the weather. We're sending Dan off to Canada to spy him out. Make sure they're not thinking of doing anything to us. Going to war with Canada. We're going to clear cut it. And uh, just kidding. Why aren't those jokes popular in Portland? I don't understand. <laughs> Make it the industrial part of America. All right. <laughs> just kidding. All you Canadians. Kind of. Um, hope you had a good Christmas. You guys brave the weather to come. That's very impressive. It's only 20 degrees out. Very nice. Uh, we're going to open the doors if some of you are hot and uh, bring, turn, bring the fans back in from the summer. Be nice. Hey, if uh, you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. We've been going through the Gospel of John, and uh, we're in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John. The book of John was written by Jesus' best friend, a guy that he hung out with all the time, was one of his disciples. And John ultimately wrote this book to say, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing that, you would receive eternal life. It's kind of a bold way to start a book. Kind of a bold idea. Most authors do not go, I'm going to write this book so that people will believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing they'll have eternal life. But that's John's premise that Jesus is God. And as we've journeyed through this story, we've seen him encountering all kinds of people, uh, pursuing them, going after them. People who, in the mainstream of the religious community, were normally quite rejected by the church of that day. And yet Jesus, when God shows up in the flesh, John shows Jesus going to people who were extremely marginalized in that society. The woman at the well, woman caught in adultery, uh, blind men and paralyzed people, and people that society normally shuns and looks away from. As we come to chapter 10 in the Gospel of John, it's falling on the heels of a story in which Jesus heals a blind man. A man who had been blind from birth. And nowhere in the history of Israel had there ever been a recording of someone who is born with congenital blindness being healed from that. As this man is healed from his blindness, immediately the church comes in and begins to attack him and attack Jesus. Rather than celebrating what God had done, they look through the lens of doubt. They always begin with doubt. And from there, they build their conclusions. And beginning with doubt, they... They subscribe to the fact that this guy could have been born blind. He has to be lying. And as he continues to tell the story and he's not making it up, they get so ticked with him that they kick him out of the church, excommunicate him. Ultimately, he ends up losing all kinds of rights and privileges as a Jewish person. He's shunned by the whole society, kicked out of the church. Jesus finds this guy hears that he's been kicked out, and he goes and looks for him. And when he finds him, he invites him to trust in Christ and have eternal life. Well, all the religious leaders come around him and they begin to accuse Jesus at that point. They're attacking him. And it's in that context that he tells this proverb, this parable, this story 
of John chapter 10. And before I get into that, a little bit of history of, he uses a metaphor of a shepherd and his flock, which really is useless to us today. Uh, we don't all see and have pure understandings of what shepherds do or even know where they're at. But in Palestine in this time and today as well, shepherding a flock would have been a, a pretty normal image, something that everyone could latch on to. And the way that they did it in Palestine as opposed to in the West, in the West they drive herds, kind of like ranchers. So if you have sheep, you get behind them and you drive them. You get dogs and they push and push the sheep into pasture wherever they want them. And then you push those sheep into your corral. And you don't ever mix your sheep around with other people's sheep because they won't know whose is whose. Very different in Palestine in that the shepherd leads the sheep. The sheep follow him. The reason they follow him is because they have, they're attuned to his voice and only his voice. So they trust when they hear that voice to follow. When, they, when he brings them in from the field or wherever he pastures them, he walks in front of them and leads them into what they call a sheep kind of corral or, or gate. They walk through the gate and it's a gate that's surrounded by large walls to keep wolves and bears and other things from coming in and stealing or killing the sheep. But he, can le- he moves them in. They could be mixed up with all kinds of other uh, sheep from other flocks. And it's an amazing thing because when he walks in the next day, they open the door and he says whatever he says and they know his voice and his sheep come out and the other ones stay. With that in mind, he, he introduces this metaphor, this picture of himself as shepherd. And here's what he says. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what He was telling them. When Jesus shows up on the scene, John portrays Him as the shepherd of the sheep. And as Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders, He's speaking in an accusatory way to them. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 34, we find what Jesus is alluding to here and ultimately saying He's fulfilling. Listen to the words of Ezekiel chapter 34. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat their curds, you clothe yourselves with wool, and you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. 
And they were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched, and no one looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because my flock laps a shepherd, and so has been plundered and has become food for the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than the flock, therefore, O shepherds, hear what the Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and the settlements of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and the mountain heights will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. There they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. When Jesus comes on the picture in John 10, He's bringing the fullness of Ezekiel 34 to bear. And as these men who are kicking out this blind dude for getting healed, Jesus comes on them in this fashion and says, I'm going to tell you a proverb. And when they hear it, they're like, I don't don't even know what he's talking about. And he begins to unpack it for them. And what Jesus is ultimately saying is that he is extremely different than the shepherd's that were there in that day. That His love and His care are extremely different than the love and care that the so-called religious leaders were given to those people. And the question that it begs for us is, how is Jesus' love and care different from other love and care that you and I can go to to receive fulfillment? It really is the question of your faith. Because all of us, deep down, are looking for love and care. We're looking for someone who will ultimately find in us enough value to give themselves to. That they will love us, they will care for us, they will provide, they will protect, and enter into that relationship. And some of you would say, oh, you know, that's cheesy. But ultimately, deep down, if we can unpack the immaturity of your heart, that's what we'd see inside of it. As cheesy as it might sound to some of you. You want to be loved. You want to be cared for. And wherever you're looking in this world, that is what you're looking for ultimately. Something that will connect you to that value. And the question that Jesus is is basically presenting, that He wants us to ask, is how is His love different? His care different? from the love and care that you and I can go find somewhere else.
Listen to what he says as he begins to answer the question and describe the meaning of the proverb. Chapter, chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus relates himself in two ways to the story. He says, first, I am the gate. and Secondly, I am the shepherd in this story. But he's ultimately claiming that he is very different from these other shepherds, that his love is extremely different, in that his love is a saving love. He says, the only way that you can be saved is to come through him. And that is a bold claim. In light of that, he says, when you come through this gate, when you experience my saving love, you will go in and you will go out and you'll find good pasture. It's this picture of freedom and protection. That the sheep will be able to go where it needs to go. It will find good and plentiful care, but, and it will be safe. He contrasts that with this other kind of deceiving love and care. And it all comes down to motivation. He says the thief, when he comes in, he's only thinking of one thing. He wants to steal, he wants to kill, he wants to destroy. But if a thief comes into the sheep pen, he has to do something to get him to follow him. He has to get him to trust him. And the way he gets him to trust him, by deceiving him and to say, yeah, I'm going to be good to you, I'm going to be good to you, come, follow me. As soon as he gets him away... He kills them or slaughters them or sells them or does whatever he wants. He has no care for the sheep. So they're unsafe and therefore they're unsaved. There's no protection there. And Jesus contrasts that by saying, I am the one that if you come through me, I will save you and I will restore life to you. I have come that you would have life to the full. What's interesting to me is that so many of us find ourselves running to the ones that kill us. Running to the things that destroy us. Buying into the deception that something else out there will give me the fullness of life. That something else out there will save me. Whether it's this addiction or this relationship or this degree or this money or this thing whatever it is that's what i'm ultimately banking on to save me and jesus is explaining that as the goodness of his love and his care is extremely different from all those other things that you and i would think of to save us he says i my love gives you life and fullness and ultimately is a saving love. All those other things that you and I trust in, they come with a cost, and there's an element of deception in them. So we say, you know, if I just have that drink, I'll be so happy. 
If I can get high again, that'll make me feel better. If I have a one-night stand or I go on the computer or I do that thing, I'll be fulfilled in the moment. I really need this. If I have this much money, then I can finally get right with God because then I'm set. And all of those are basically deceiving and undercutting us in such a way it says what I really want to do is steal. I want to kill. I want to destroy. Because ultimately I'm getting you to trust something to save you that cannot save you. And the end result is the lone sheep wandered off following a false shepherd that's going to take its life. And Jesus contrasts that love and care by saying my love and care is total opposite of that. My love and care will save you for your benefit to go in and out and find pasture. And my love will save you to give you the fullness of life that you were created to have. That's a huge claim that Jesus is making. And for you and I, and I'm sure the people in this crowd, the question becomes one of trust. When someone makes that type of claim, can you trust it? And trust is at the foundation of all love and care. I trust my wife fully because after 14 years, her love and care for me has built that kind of trust. But we also trust in tons of things that are deceiving. You trust that that relationship was was flawed. You knew it was kind of sketchy, but you get into it because you think it'll make you happy and it broke you down. At some point, all of us comes down to trust. And when Jesus says, my love is totally different than this love over here, the question is, can we trust that? Will you trust that? In verse 11, he begins to, again, unpack how different his love is. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away, and then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The question of trust, he begins to deal with in this section. And he deals with it and he calls himself two things. I am good and I am shepherd. And his goodness that he is motivated by selfless acts towards, towards the sheep. And as shepherd, he is there as protector, provider. Ultimately saying, I will lay down my life for the sheep. That the trust that he's inviting us to have in this claim that says, Jesus alone can save us. And Jesus alone will fulfill our life. He then comes in and says, Jesus as your shepherd will never abandon you. And abandonment really is the biggest killer of trust that there possibly is. I've talked to so many of you who, who grew up never knowing your dad. That has left a huge wound in your heart at some level because the father, the picture of father has been totally askewed from you. 
And that that wound, that person that you needed in your life to be a shepherd, to protect and provide and care and love and nurture, just left and abandoned you. That undercuts trust at that level. Jesus' promise is that nothing can make me scatter. Nothing can make me leave your side. He says most of the things that are out there are self-seeking. So these other shepherds are just hirelings. They come in and they, they protect the flock as long as they get a paycheck. But the minute it's going to cost them something from themselves, they say, I'm out. I'm out. For, uh, for Jesus, He says, I will stand there with you. And when the enemies come to attack, I will lay down my life to protect the sheep. You're going to hear Him say over and over in this passage, I will lay down my life for the sheep. There's no greater picture of love than that. Romans chapter 3 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the sheep don't even know who the shepherd is, don't even care about the shepherd, but in the shepherd's love, he's saying, I will lay down my life. The difference between the love of all these other things that you and I can throw ourselves into and the love of Jesus that His love will never abandon us, even to the point of Him dying first. That is an amazing claim. Verse 14, He says again, I am the Good Shepherd. I know My sheep, and My sheep know Me. Just as the Father knows Me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen, and I must bring them also, and they too will listen to my voice. There shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus' love and care for his sheep is modeled off the love and care that he shares with the Father. So he says this, this kind of incredible statement, and he says that I will know my sheep and they will know me just as I know the Father and the Father knows me. And he builds into this relationship. Radically different from anything else that people were trusting in, particularly those shepherds of Israel. Because he says, not only do I want to save you and give you fullness of life, Not only will I never abandon you, but ultimately, I want to know you. And you will know me. And he creates this intimate picture of relationship. For many of us up to this point, this has been a pretty good story. I like the fact that Jesus wants to save me. I like the fact that He wants to give me fullness of life. I love the fact that He'll never abandon me. But now He wants to know me. And many of us are like this sheep that's been scattered. And as sheep are scattered, you can imagine, they live in constant fear. The metaphor of sheep in Scripture kind of pricks our pride because sheep are not the smartest of animals. Nor are they a very bold or brave animal. No one ever says, look out, Bill, there's a bunch of sheep over there. You're not afraid of that. In fact, sheep are 
completely reliant and dependent. They'll never lay down. They're sketched out by the slightest little thing. They'll freak out to the point where you know, they're emotionally in this incredible crisis. If they fall over on their side, they can't get themselves back up. And so sh- shepherds have to come in and pick the sheep back up. And they'll just lay there until they die. Which is not unlike some of us. When you blow it in your relationship with God, there's many of us who lay on the floor and just, God hates me, I cannot get up. And you just lay there until you die. And people come in, they're like, no buddy, we're going to be okay. Come on, here we go. So he uses this picture of sheep. But he says, for, for many of us, those sheep get scattered and then they live in that sketchiness. Waiting to be attacked, waiting to be bitten on, waiting to be... Uh, having to run for their lives. And you live your whole life like that enough, then you kind of live your life in this defensive mode. And you can picture a shepherd that's actually trying to care for a sheep who's been in constant fear for their life, constant state of self-protection. The thing is not wanting to trust. And when Jesus says, I want to know you, it requires the ability to put down your fists. Because so many of us walk around in our heart of hearts with our fists up, going, don't get too close to me, buddy, because I'll knock you out. You're protecting yourself. And that promise that says, I will save you, I will give you the fullness of life, I will never abandon you, but I also, I want to know you. That just scares the snot out of so many of us. Because to be known means I have to put my fist down and let Christ in. But the amazing thing about Jesus, He doesn't say, if you put your fist down, I will know you. He just says, I know my sheep. I can see a sheep that's over there, scared to death, thinking it's going to beat me up, can't trust me. You know that about a sheep. Like you're not all, oh wow, they're fooling me. Jesus doesn't look at you any differently. He doesn't go, oh wow, she's fooling me to think that I can't get into her heart. He knows you. And He wants you to know Him. He says the love that He has, the care that He has, is wrapped up in the intimacy of relationship with Him. Just as the Father and He are intimate in that relationship. And he goes on to say that it's not just these people that are listening to the story at that moment in time. But he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And for 2,000 years, historically, globally, universally, Christ has been gathering His sheep to Himself. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Paints this huge picture of how different His love and care is. And again, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. As if there's any question of his love and goodness, it is always backed up with that statement, I will lay down my life for my sheep. Because he loves you. In verse 17, he says, the reason that the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this is the command that I received from the Father. For many of us, when we fully trust ourselves into the love and care of someone or something, it comes with this idea of um, intent. In other words, I know that I have really good intentions towards my kids to love and care for them. But I am limited at times in my power and ability. So if my son's out skateboarding and hits a rock and goes flying forward and slams his head on the ground and cuts it wide open and starts bleeding, I did not want that to happen to him. That was not my intention when I said, yes, you can go skateboard. But I don't have the power or the ability to be there all places at all times to protect him. And I remember when my kids, as some of them are still little, but, but when bad things happen to them, their immediate thing is, why didn't you keep that from happening? Why didn't you stop that from happening? Because I couldn't. Jesus' statements in 17 and 18 He says, the reason the Father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up and no one can take it from me. These incredible promises that He makes, I will save you, I will give you life, I will never abandon you, I am the protector, I am the provider, I want to know you are backed up with the fact that Jesus has the power and the authority to fulfill those promises. Anything else you trust in, anything else you care in, will not have that kind of power and authority to fulfill those promises. Ever. Jesus says, the Father and I are so at one with this. We are so at one with our love for you. That He loves me because I'm doing this. That is, that is a nutty picture of a shepherd's love. When it comes to that thing of saying that, will you be known? And can you trust Him? The fear that we may have of His goodness should be alleviated. Because He says, I will lay down my life for you. The fear we have of His inability to never abandon us should be alleviated. Because He's clearly Lord and sovereign and in control. Our fear of His good intentions towards us not being able to be completed should be eliminated. Because He lays down His life and has authority to take it up. And you and I get to stand on this side of the cross where the resurrection is a fact. And that a resurrection that we're banking our faith on. Well, you make these kind of claims in a crowd of all these people, and it's not like they all just went, oh, that is so precious. Praise you, Jesus. Nor are you doing that now. These kind of claims Jesus makes to create tension. And He creates a ton of tension. Tension so much so that as they listen... The Jews were again divided, 
And many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to Him? That's what people think. They hear that and they go, Dude, you're nuts. You're a freak. Hey, cuckoo, you need to go to a nut house, bro. Like, you're saying things that are ridiculous. It's the same with Hitler and Stalin and some of these regimes that had this is the way of thought, and if you stood up and taught against it, they were like, put you in prison or put you in a madhouse. Well, that's where they're at with Jesus. And they say, dude, you're possessed by the devil, and you're nuts. And others listen to him, and they say, wait a second. These aren't the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And in their skepticism, they have some hope. What if his words are true? And that same tension is in this room right now in your hearts. It's no different. Some of you are listening to the words and you're saying, Rick, you're a fool for thinking that. The Scriptures are goofy. And you're thinking that's just a bunch of crap. Others of you are sitting there with the woundedness of your heart, like those sheep that were like sketched out because they've been attacked over and over, that are hoping, could this be true? And some of you have bought into it completely and you need to be encouraged that this is your God. The so what of the passage is that Jesus is vying for a pretty large space in your life by these claims. By stating that no one can love you or care for you like I can. No one can save you. No one can give you fullness of life. No one will never abandon you. And I want to know you more intimate than anyone else can ever know you. And I have the power and authority to do it. It's a huge claim. And this morning, my prayer is that the skeptics would turn to believers, that those who are beaten and wounded would understand that love and compassion. And those of you who have been walking down this road would be encouraged to keep walking and preaching and believing. Let's pray. God, You are so compassionate and loving towards us. We think of Your Word and we we recognize that in Isaiah it says all of us like sheep have gone astray. God, we resonate with that. And this immense love that You're displaying in this chapter, God, we don't deserve. Nor can we earn it. And Father God, this morning is we have heard Your claims, Jesus, about Yourself about Your goodness as shepherd, about You as the gate and the one way to salvation, Your promise to never abandon us, to give us the fullness of life, Your promise to know us intimately. All of that is banked on the display of love that You had for us when You laid down Your life and took it up again. So it's sealed in this promise. And This morning, God, I I pray that You, Holy Spirit, would come into the tension that's in every heart in this room. The tension of the skeptic, I pray that You would soften. That You would speak Your love and Your healing Word to them. They might believe. I pray for 
those, God, who have been beaten, who are those scattered sheep, who have been attacked, some by themselves, and that You would give them the courage to trust in Your love and Your care for them. A love and care that is beyond anything else we could trust ourselves in. For those this morning, God, who have been banking their souls on something else besides You to save them, I pray that You would free them from that, allow them to repent and give themselves fully to You. And God, for those who have believed and who walk this path, that You would continue to encourage them in lifting Yourself up in their eyes as the great and good shepherd, the lover of the sheep, that they would worship You deeply and intimately, knowing You this morning. So God, would You come with Your agenda now, by Your Spirit, into our lives, and do Your business as we worship You. I pray in Your name. Amen. As Jesus made all these claims and continually based it on that He would give His life for the sheep, to those listening, that's something that hadn't happened yet. That was something that it was just a promise He'd made. But we stand here on this side of the cross understanding that, that He had fully did that. And that what He promised, He did. And we celebrate that this morning. And on the night He was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and He broke it and He said, This is my body which is for you, just as he had promised, and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and do this in remembrance of me. And, and this morning, as a community of faith, we come to realize the promise that Jesus has given as he has fulfilled it, and a very meaningful promise, the promise of salvation through his body and his blood shed on the cross. And so we invite you, if you're a Christ follower, to come and, and partake in that in remembrance of what he had did, in remembrance of the fulfillment there. If you want to pray with somebody, there's people in the back uh, to pray with. And if you are wondering what it means to be a Christ follower, we have a red table in the back there with packets on it that have some stuff to kind of help you figure that out. Or the prayer people or Rick or myself would be glad to talk to you about that. So why don't you please stand and why don't you join us in, uh, in response.